Good afternoon, everybody, again, and I hope you enjoyed your lunch and you're ready to get back underway. Special welcome to those of us joining online. Thank you for spending part of your afternoon with us. Now, it's been nearly 127 years, and our club continues to thrive, thanks in large part to the generous support of our sponsors. Today's event is sponsored by EY, TD, TMX, and Bruce Power. We thank you for your, gener for your generous support, and I'd also like to proudly thank our seasoned sponsor, Canadian Bankers Association, and our official airline partner, Air Canada. We, we really couldn't put these on without all of your support, so thank you very much for continuing to invest in our club. Also, our entire season is carbon neutral thanks to a partnership we have with Canada's Forest Trust. So through this partnership, we're, they plant forests on our behalf to offset our entire season's carbon impact, and then they nurture them for future generations. So thank you, CFT, for planting a forest and maintaining it in our honor. Thank you. Now here at Canadian Club Toronto, we often bring young leaders to the table to join us, and today we're welcoming a group from TMU, so thank you for joining us. And I'll say, if any of you have a macroeconomics final you're cramming for before Christmas, we've got an authority here. <laughs> you can um, ask questions if you want to check your answers, and in fact that goes for everybody. The center of your table, there's a question card. Please fill out your questions, I've already got a half dozen of them come my way, and we will gladly work them into the discussion. And for those of you online, you'll see on the canadianclub.org feed, you'll see a click to ask a question button. So please use that and we'll incorporate your questions into the discussion at the end. Now, as I mentioned a little earlier, the Bank of Canada has many functions, um, but we often think of monetary policy in first. And indeed, the bank made its most recent um, interest rate announcement on December 6th. And we are fortunate to have the governor with us to elaborate and talk a little bit more about that. Tiff Macklem was appointed Governor of the Bank of Canada in June of 2020. Let that timing sink in for a second. <laughs> it was an auspicious time. Um, he first joined the bank in 1984 and returned in 1989, holding increasingly senior positions in what is now known as the Canadian Economic Analysis Department until his appointment as Chief in January 2000. He was appointed Advisor to the Governor in August 20, 2003 and made, was made a deputy governor in 2004. During the 0809 financial crisis, he was associate deputy minister and de at the Department of Finance and represented Canada at the G7, at the G20, at, and on the Financial Stability Board. Mr. Macklem returned to the bank in 2010 where he was appointed senior deputy governor. In July 2014, he became dean at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and before becoming governor, he was also a director at the Bank of Nova Scotia, the chair of its board risk committee. He was also a chair of Ontario's plan on economic growth and prosperity, the federal expert panel on sustainable finance, and the Global Risk Institute in financial services. And with that, I would like to invite Governor Macklem to the podium. Governor, the podium of the Canadian Club Toronto is yours. Well, thank you, Glenn, for that uh, lovely introduction, and 
Good afternoon to everybody. It is a great pleasure to be back in Toronto for this, my final speech of the year. I want to thank the Canadian Club Toronto for the invitation, and I want to thank all of you for joining me today. I am looking forward to our discussion, and I'm looking forward to hearing from as many of you as possible. As the year ends, I can't help but reflect on the year that was and think about the year ahead. We've come a long way toward restoring price stability. This was our second year of monetary policy tightening, and that work is paying off. The economy is no longer overheated, and that is relieving inflationary pressures. Inflation's come down from just over 8% in the middle of last year to 3% in October, 3.1% in October to be precise. That's significant progress. But to many Canadians, I know it doesn't feel great. We are in the tough phase of the monetary cycle. Inflation's come down, but it's still too high. And the increases in interest rates that are needed to relieve price pressures are squeezing many Canadians. L'année 2024 sera une année de transition. Les effets des augmentations de taux passés vont continuer à se transmettre dans l'économie. Ça va ralentir les dépenses et limiter la croissance de l'emploi. C'est malheureusement nécessaire pour bien freiner l'inflation. Cette période de ralentissement va faciliter un retour à une économie plus équilibrée. La croissance et le marché du travail devraient se redresser plus tard en 2024. L'inflation devrait se rapprocher de la cible de 2 Quand le conseil de direction sera convaincu que la stabilité des prix est en voie, voie d'être rétablie, on pensera à baisser le taux directeur et au meilleur moment pour le faire. Je sais. Il est tentant de commencer à parler à ces baisses, mais il est encore trop tôt pour y penser. Looking ahead, I expect 2024 to be a year of transition. The effects of past interest rate increases will continue to work through the economy, restraining spending and limiting growth and employment. Unfortunately, this is what's needed to take the remaining steam out of inflation. But this period of weakness will pave the way to a more balanced economy. We expect growth and jobs to be picking up later next year, and inflation will be getting close to the 2% target. And once governing council is assured that we are clearly on a path back to price stability, we will be considering whether and when we can lower our policy interest rate. I know it's tempting to rush ahead to that discussion, but it's still too early to consider cutting our policy rate. Until we see evidence that we are clearly on a path back to 2% inflation, I expect Governing Council will continue to debate whether monetary policy is restrictive enough and how long it needs to remain restrictive to restore price stability. In a world with increased macroeconomic volatility, we are also conscious that we may need to be nimble and we should be humble about our forecasts. Looking beyond next year, 
we also need to be thinking about what the post-pandemic normal will look like. In the past few years, the Canadian and global economies have experienced enormous volatility. And while the pandemic is behind us, wars, geopolitical tensions, climate risks, high debt levels, all pose new challenges. And against this background, it's critical that we learn from the high inflation that we've seen since the pandemic so that we can come out of this difficult period better prepared for what lies ahead. These are the themes I want to talk about today. First, I'll look ahead to what you can expect in the economy in the coming year. Then I'm going to explain what you can expect from the Bank of Canada as we complete the journey back to price stability. We're never going to have a crystal ball, but the experience of recent years does have some important lessons. We've learned some things, we're adjusting, and I want to tell you how. So let me start with the outlook. We're working on a new forecast and we'll release our fully updated economic projections in late January. But we have a good idea of the broad strokes. Economic growth stalled through the middle of this year and we expect it to remain weak into 2024. The excess demand that drove prices higher over the past two years is now gone as higher interest rates and tighter global financial conditions have helped the economy rebalance. With the cost of living still increasing too quickly and with growth subdued, the next two to three quarters will be difficult for many. Consumers will continue to hold back spending. Businesses will see weak demand and employment will probably grow more slowly than the labor force. That means the unemployment rate will likely increase further. That brings me to the inflation outlook. As growth slows, inflation pressures will ease, but we can't rule out some bumps along the way. We already have clear evidence that higher interest rates are bringing inflation down. Inflation for durable and semi-durable goods, things like furniture, appliances, clothing and footwear, is now below 2%. Increases in the cost of services excluding shelter is just over 2%. That's pretty normal. What's not normal is that inflation in the prices of food, non-durable goods, and in shelter costs. Food price inflation has eased, but it's still about 5.5%. That's hurting everyone, especially lower-income Canadians. Inflation in the prices of non-durable goods, excluding food and energy, things like cleaning supplies, uh, personal care items, that's running about 4.5%. And inflation in the cost of shelter services has actually risen to almost 7%. Now taken together, these three big categories of goods and services make up almost half of the CPI basket. So it's no wonder that people are still feeling the pressure of higher prices. Unless the pace of price increases in these big categories slows, it's gonna be hard to get overall inflation down to the 2% target. Now the first two show some promise. Food price inflation should decline further as lower agricultural prices and transportation costs gets passed through to the prices of groceries. And slowing demand should moderate non-durable goods price inflation. This leaves shelter price inflation. Why is shelter price inflation rising even as the economy slows? Well, part of the reason is that our higher policy rate is increasing mortgage interest costs. That's not unexpected or unusual. 
What is unusual is that the other components of shelter costs, like rent, maintenance, they're also high. Rent was up 8.2% in October. This strength in shelter price inflation appears to be related to the structural lack of supply in housing. Canada's housing supply has not kept up with growth in our population, and higher rates of immigration are widening the gap. Increases in interest rates are moderating the demand for housing and bringing the housing market into better balance, but the structural undersupply of, undersupply of housing means that inflationary pressure in shelter prices remains elevated. We do expect shelter price inflation to moderate over time, but I'll admit, predicting the time, timing is difficult. So what's the bottom line? Over the coming months, you should expect to see some push and pull on inflation as the cooling economy reduces price pressures while other forces continue to exert upward pressure. That's why further declines in inflation will likely be gradual. When it's clear that inflation is on a sustained downward track, we can begin discussing lowering our policy interest rate. We don't need to wait until inflation is all the way back to the 2% target to consider easing policy but it does need to be clearly headed to 2%. Now, of course, we can't rule out new surprises, and there are some obvious candidates. We could see an escalation of war in Europe or the Middle East or geopolitical tensions that divert trade and investment and disrupt supply chains. Climate events have become more frequent and more extreme, both at home and abroad, and their fallout often pushes prices up. All these risks mean we need to be vigilant and ready to adjust as needed. But looking at the year behind us is a good reminder of how far we've come. The 2% inflation target is now in sight. And while we're not there yet, the conditions increasingly appear to be in place to get us there. The economy is no longer in excess demand and underlying inflationary pressures are easing in much of the economy. We still need to see more downward momentum in core inflation. And we'll be watching the demand supply balance, wage growth, corporate pricing behavior, and inflation expectations closely as we assess where we are on the path to price stability. We're also learning from the volatility over the past few years. If we take on board the lessons we've learned, we can come out of this difficult monetary cycle better equipped than when we went into it. In my year-end speech last December, I talked about some of the lessons from the high inflation that followed the pandemic. I highlighted three. It's a lot easier to restore demand than supply. Supply problems have a much bigger effect on inflation when the economy is overheated. And to better identify emerging inflationary pressures, we need to look beyond the aggregate economy and understand sectoral pressures. Today, I want to add two more lessons. The first one, we've actually had to relearn. Inflation is painful. It harms Canadians and it harms the economy. It makes people angry and it tears at the fabric of society. I talked about this three weeks ago in St. John, so I can be brief here. An overwhelming majority of Canadians say high inflation has made them feel worse off and almost nobody feels better off. It's a reminder of the bitter experience of the big inflation in the 1970s. 
in the past two years, a whole new generation of Canadians has experienced the pain of inflation for the first time. And we've relearned that inflation is our common enemy. Second, we've learned how valuable public trust is in the fight against inflation. We didn't have this trust in the 1970s and it proved very difficult to get inflation back down. This time, trust combined with our forceful monetary policy response has kept longer run inflation expectations anchored on the 2% target. And inflation is coming down with less short-term economic cost. To keep that trust we have and to restore the trust we've lost because inflation has been too high for the past couple years, we must improve transparency and communicate more clearly and more broadly. We're taking these lessons to heart. They're informing our work and our policy decisions. And this brings me to what you can expect from the Bank of Canada as we work to restore and maintain price stability. First, you can expect us to stay the course and get inflation back to the 2% target. Second, we're enhancing our tools and analysis to better assess and respond to inflation amid uncertainty and increased economic volatility. And third, we are continuing to listen more and communicate better, reaching more Canadians where they want to get their information. So let me take each one of these in turn. We're committed to getting inflation back to 2%, and for good reason. At that level, inflation is low enough that people don't need to worry about changes in their cost of living from one year to the next. The economy works better when inflation is low and stable. There's more competition, there's less disagreement about wages and prices, and there's greater stability. Now, some have argued that it's too difficult to get back to 2%. So why not settle for 3%? But you don't raise the target just because you missed it. We've been targeting 2% inflation since 1995 and it anchors our economic and financial system. If you change the anchor when the going gets tush, tough, well, you don't really have an anchor. And inflation gets less predictable and more volatile. Simply put, price stability centered on our 2% target is the best contribution the Bank of Canada can make to a healthy economy and the financial well-being of Canadians. We're also committed to enhancing our tools and analysis. We don't expect the next few years to be as volatile as the last few have been. But increasingly, leading central bankers and economists see a future with more supply disruptions and more shifts in economic relationships and breaks in the connections we've taken for granted. This underlies the importance of learning from past experience. In particular, we need to pay more attention to the supply side and develop analytical tools that are better equipped to address breaks and shifts. This work is underway and already providing new insights. We've invested in new sources of data to get a more granular picture of supply and demand across sectors and households. This includes a new digital business leaders pulse survey, which is focused on small and medium-sized businesses. Some of you have probably participated in it. It includes broader analysis of labor market indicators and the capacity to analyze very large uh, data sets such as anonymized uh, mortgage, mortgages held by Canadians. We have also developed more detailed indicators of supply chain bottlenecks and we are continue, continuing to evaluate new data sources. 
We're also adapting our economic models so they have the flexibility to accommodate economic shifts. During the pandemic shock and the recovery, the main drivers of growth and inflation shifted, but our models generally reflected our past economic relationships. We're working to develop the next generation of models for monetary policy that allow for more changes in behavior and provide greater flexibility to consider alternative risk scenarios. Finally, we're committed to constantly strengthening our decision-making process and improving our communications. We want diverse perspectives. We want to listen more, reach out more, and connect with more Canadians. Many of these changes are already well advanced. Earlier this year, we adjusted Governing Council by bringing in an external, non-executive deputy governor for a term of two years. We did this because we want to bring more diverse perspectives into our policymaking. This year, we also began publishing a summary of our deliberations to provide more insight into Governing Council's monetary policy decisions. We've also been providing more plain language summaries and short video clips on social media to explain our decisions and the outlook for the economy. And Governing Council is visiting communities across our vast country to listen to Canadians and explain the work of the bank. You'll see more of this in 2024. Beginning in 2024, we'll also hold a news conference after every policy decision. We want households, businesses, and communities to understand the actions we are taking and why. Taking questions at every decision is my part, is my commitment to explain our actions. It's time for me to conclude. Nous avons fait beaucoup de chemin en 2023. Quand je vais faire mon discours à fin de l'année en 2024, je m'attends à voir des changements positifs. Une économie en croissance, plus de projets d'embauche dans les entreprises et une inflation proche de 2 Bien sûr, prédire l'avenir n'est pas facile. Réduire l'inflation pourrait être plus difficile que prévu. On va devoir rester vigilante. We've come a long way in 2023, and by the time I give my year-end speech next year, I expect the economy will be growing. Businesses' hiring plans will be expanding, and inflation will be getting close to our 2% target. Of course, predicting the future is difficult. And it could be harder to get inflation down than we think. We know we need to remain vigilant. But the progress we've made in restoring price stability is considerable and it's real. When I gave my year-end speech last year in Vancouver, the latest inflation reading was 6.9%. Today, it's less than half that, and further reductions in inflation are in the pipeline. This progress has not been without cost. Many Canadians are feeling squeezed by higher interest rates. At the bank, we are doing our best to balance the risks of over and under tightening. But if we learned anything from the bitter experience with the inflation of the 1970s, the biggest mistake would be to waver in our resolve to control inflation and lose the public's trust. The inflation surge that has hit Canada and the world in the last two years has taught us some important lessons. We are taking these on board and we will continue to learn and adapt, guided by our commitment to delivering price stability for Canadians. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Governor, for your remarks. And let me take this opportunity to thank you again for choosing our podium for your final talk of the year. We really do appreciate that. Uh, members and guests, we now have some time for questions, so please use the question cards. I've got a few already, but please get your questions up and we'll try to discuss over the next 15 minutes or so. Um, first one I've got um, reflects a little bit on comments from the Bank of England and ECB and now Jerome Powell most recently talking about um, where they're at. And I think the ECB and the, the Bank of England sounded a lot like your remarks. Jerome Powell was slightly different. I was wondering if you could comment on where you see Canada in the cycle versus the United States? Um, well, the first thing I want to stress is that <clears throat> we have our own currency in this country, we have a flexible exchange rate, and that means we can run our own monetary policy in Canada that is geared to the circumstances in Canada. And so the Fed's going to do what they need to do. We're going to focus on what needs to be done here in Canada. Um, and. The question everybody is asking is, you know, when are you going to lower interest rates? Uh, and everybody would like us to put it on a calendar. And if you can tell me what inflation is going to be, you can tell me what growth is going to be, you can, you can tell me all those things, I could put it on a calendar. But, you know, we have a forecast, but there's uncertainty around forecasts. What I can be really clear about are the conditions under which we will begin discussing cutting interest rates. We have not started having that discussion because it's too early to have that discussion. We're still discussing whether we've raised interest rates enough um, and how long they need to stay where they are. When we are reassured that we're clearly on a, back path, on a, a path back to 2% inflation, uh, yes, we will be having that. We will be having that discussion. Um, and I look forward to that discussion, but we're not there yet. Great. Thank you. Um, speaking of the discussion, and then you mentioned the decision-making process at, at the bank. I've got a question here. It says, have you noticed the ef that any effects of publishing the Bank of Canada interest rate deliberation summaries? Um, well, I do think they provide uh, some more insight into our thinking. Uh, you know, after, well, as I mentioned, uh, we will be moving to eight uh, news conferences a year for We've had four. Uh, and when, when I do a news conference after a rate decision, I do provide a little bit of insight into the discussion, but there's only so much time. And the, the summary of deliberations does provide um, further insight into our thinking, our decisions. I don't think any one summary of deliberations is really that important, but the idea is over time, uh, the market, Canadians, anybody who's interested, they, they understand more how we're thinking. Right. And so they understand how we're likely to react when the situation changes. And one thing we know is that monetary policy works better when more people understand it. So that's what we're trying to do. Right. And that, that was the second part, which is, has it changed the way the public reacts? It might be too early to get that gauge, I guess is what you're saying. Um, changing tack a little bit, this question says, you know, Given your broad and deep view, um, what has to happen for the use of government-created money to address the current headwinds and kickstart mega-projects? And do you see the Bank of Canada having a role to help the government think through that? No. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> uh, I think those are decisions to be taken by uh, elected governments, not by the Bank of Canada. Yep. Um, 
And just to be clear, we do not fund the government. Correct. Um, as a, as a mid-sized country with a, with, that's very open, um, is, affecting, is affecting inflation today a bigger challenge than it was, say, in the, in the late 70s, early 80s? Uh, well, on balance, I actually think we're in a much better position than we were in the 70s and the 80s, uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. But I, I think what is more challenging today, and, and probably everybody in this room you know, is experiencing it, um, the world is, is much more tightly coupled than it was in the 70s or even the 80s. Um, and so things get transmitted. Everything's happening faster. Uh, things are, are, are more connected. And so, yes, things reverberate around uh, much more quickly uh, and more powerfully than they did in, in earlier periods. Uh, and so that, that does add a new level of complexity that whether you're a central banker or you're running a business, you know, we're all dealing with it. Um, why I think, though, we're in a much better position than we were in the 70s. In the 1970s, there was no monetary anchor. We had, in the 60s, 50s and 60s, been on a system of fixed exchange rates. Uh, the peg globally was abandoned in the early 70s, and there was nothing really put in place to put it, to replace it. So there was no monetary aggregate. There was no monetary anchor. Uh, and governments and central banks didn't have the resolve to finish the job. And they, they were trying to lower inflation in the 70s, but they didn't have the resolve to stay the course and uh, get inflation back down. And so unfortunately, Canadians and citizens actually around the world lived with a decade of very high and volatile inflation. And that was only ended by a very deep recession. Uh, and the difference today is, and so there was, there, you know, the public, public expectations were not anchored. There was no real trust in, in central banks to do the job. That made the job very difficult. Today, we're, we're starting from a much better situation. Uh, we've had 25 years of successfully targeting inflation. Uh, inflation, you know, through that 25 years was within our one to three band 80% of the time. Uh, inflation actually averaged 1.9% over that 25-year uh, period. Uh, that really matters. We have a proven record that we can and will bring inflation back to target. So this time around, uh, when inflation went up uh, rapidly, um, you didn't see long-run expectations of inflation move very much. They've stayed well anchored. Now, of course, that was combined with forceful action. You can't just we couldn't just wait and let this problem solve itself. It wasn't going to solve itself. We did take forceful action uh, and raised, raised rates rapidly. But the combination of much more trust or credibility in central banks with uh, a forceful response has kept inflation expectations much better anchored. And so inflation actually has come down much more quickly than it did in the 70s and at, at much less economic cost. Thank you. Um, different one. With, with core inflation still elevated, how would you describe the effect of a carbon tax on, on overall inflation? Yes, I get asked about this a lot. Um, <laughs> so let me just preface this by um, the Bank of Canada does not set the carbon tax. These are, these are government policies. Um, and the carbon tax, it, it's quite a complicated tax because there's a tax and then there's also a rebate. 
Uh, so sort of looking at its full effect on the economy is, is no small job, and that's really a job for you know, departments of finance to figure out. Um, we, of course, are charged with controlling inflation, and the carbon tax, because it's added on uh, at the pump or in your heating, uh, does have an effect on inflation. So the carbon tax, so there, there's, this question often comes in two ways. Uh, if, if, the, if there was no further increases in the carbon tax, well, you know, what, would, what would that mean for inflation? So the, the planned increases in the carbon tax going forward are adding to inflation about 0.15 percentage points per year. So if you stopped reducing, if you stopped increasing the carbon tax, um, inflation would be lower by 0.15 percentage points in each year of our forecast. Um, if you eliminated the, the carbon tax, uh, there would be a one once-off drop. Uh, that would, by our estimates, reduce the inflation by 0.6 percentage points in one year. And after that, you can only eliminate it once, so after that, after the year, it would have no further effect. Now, I'll just, uh, just to be precise, that is the direct impact uh, of the carbon tax on the three big fuel categories, the biggest one being gasoline. It doesn't include second round effects, but you know, given that the first round effects are not that big and the second round effects are gonna be smaller, it's a reasonable approximation. Got it. Um, now there's a lot of business people in the room and su submitting questions and I can, uh, I can probably synthesize a bunch of them by saying something like, business leaders will say revenue growth solves a lot of problems and at the country level, I'd say productivity growth solves a lot of problems. That's something we haven't distinguished ourselves in here in Canada for quite some time. Could you unpack a little bit what you see as uh, either what shows up in the data or what you see in other countries that we don't have here that we could take heed of? Well, that's a whole other speech, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> let, let me say a couple things. Uh, first of all, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, productivity growth is what underpins rising standard of living for Canadians. Rising productivity is what pays higher wages. Uh, it certainly makes your businesses easier. It makes fiscal policy easier. It makes monetary policy easier. Uh, as you said, um, you know, we, we have not had a sterling record on productivity. Uh, on a positive note, what we've been really good at as a country is growing our economy by uh, adding workers. And we've done that in two ways. We have two ways. We have very high rates of labor force participation, uh, particularly uh, you know, female participation in Canada is way above the United States. Uh, and we've been very successful in attracting, we have a very good immigration system. We've been very successful in attracting immigrants in the country. Businesses have done a very good job of integrating them uh, and uh, you know, they're growing the economy. Um, where we've, our Achilles heel has been productivity. We have not been as good at growing output per worker. Um, that's been a long standing problem. Um, the, you know, the, there are a variety of, of reasons for that. Some are probably hard to deal with. They're kind of structural. We have a lot of small and medium sized businesses in this country. They have less resources. They don't invest as much in, in machinery or equipment. They're not as export oriented. Um, their productivity tends to be lower. But uh, I, I do want to emphasize, we have a lot of great companies in this country. We have a lot of very productive companies in this country. They're competing very successfully and winning in global markets. 
We just need some more of them. It's not that we can't do it. Uh, we can do it. Uh, we, need, we need to see more of that. I, I will highlight that um, you know, coming out of the pandemic, um, productivity growth is actually, the last six quarters has actually been declining. I'll admit we are somewhat puzzled by that. We thought we'd see some improvements in productivity growth as supply chains normalized, as you know, there were a lot of new workers hired, you know, they got trained, they should be becoming more efficient. Uh, that is a source of concern, and um, you know, certainly if it persists, uh, you know, it, it will make life difficult. And you know, my one, I'm sitting here with the business community, we saw so much ingenuity uh, and innovation from the business community through COVID. Take some of that and put it to work uh, and drive productivity. We've spoken a lot about monetary policy, obviously, um, but how should Canadians think about the role of fiscal policy? So governments have a lot of priorities they need to balance. Um, where in that prioritization should they be reflecting on their contribution to inflation? Okay, well now you're getting a little out of my lane, which is always dangerous. Um, so, you know, first of all, a couple things. I mean, as you indicated, um, you know, fiscal policy is the the purview of, of elected governments and ultimately parliaments. Uh, it's a tough job. Uh, there are many worthy priorities, and governments and ultimately parliaments have got to balance those off. I will say uh, the fiscal choices are getting harder. Uh, there are a few reasons for that. One is that interest rates are higher, and while, while at some point I expect they will start to come down, I, I doubt they're going back to pre-pandemic levels. So, and combine that with the fact that debt levels are higher, um, there's going to be more interest costs for governments. Growth is, is modest, uh, and um, so, and, and you know, if productivity growth doesn't pick up, it's gonna be even more difficult. So the fiscal choices are getting harder. I think from a, from a monetary policy perspective, um, you know, what we look at is how are those fiscal choices affecting our outlook and ultimately inflation. So we take government's fiscal plans as given, uh, we look at their budgets, their, their, their economic updates. We take those plans as given, we put those in our, our models, uh, and so we take that into account in our forecasts. And um, when I was asked at the House Finance Committee um, about looking forward, if you, if you look at sort of the relationship between government spending on goods and services and the economy's potential output, if so if you look at the last two years, on average, government spending in goods and services has been growing about 2%. The potential growth of the economy, so population growth, productivity growth combined, is growing at about 2%. So government spending isn't really uh, helping us get rid of inflationary pressures. It's not slowing growth. It's not relieving inflationary pressures, but it's not really getting in the way either because government spending is growing about as much as the supply side of the economy. When we look forward to 2024, we add up all the spending plans of governments, that's growing at about 2.5%. So if they were to realize all that spending, it could start getting in the way uh, of getting inflation down. So that, that, is a, you know, that is a concern. That is something we've built into our forecast. Um, and you know, we will be watching that closely. Maybe shifting gears a little bit. How impactful do you expect the real-time payment rail to be on cash flow management associated 
and associated costs borne by individuals and businesses? Um, well, um, since probably not everybody is totally on top of payments, I'll just remind you that um, a couple of years ago we implemented a new, or we, Payments Canada, implemented a new large value payment system. Uh, that's really the backbone of, of the, 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 you know, the plumbing of the, the payment, payment system. Um, and you know you don't really need as long as it works you'll never notice it, which is exactly what we want. Um, the the real time rail is really the next leg uh, to integrate more um, consumer payments, retail payments into a more modernized payment system. Uh, we don't have that in place yet. It's coming. Um, it, it's it's a big undertaking. And I think you know once once it is here, um, it will. Um, you know, provide more opportunities for innovation on our payment system, uh, opportunities for new consumer services, and it, it will be an important step forward in further modernizing our payment system. Does globalization, does deglobalization and friendshoring, like, are those inflationary moves? Um, there's no question uh, global supply chains are shifting. Um, you, know, you talk, you know, I talk to a lot of CEOs, uh, you know, everybody's looking at, okay, how do I make my supply chain more secure, more resilient? Uh, and, you know, it's less about just in time and it's more about just in case. That obviously has a cost. Um, and so, yes, I mean, that will, that, that will create more cost. Um, in the trade world, you know, there's a lot more focus now on security than there was. Uh, and, you know, whether it's, it's governments or businesses, um, you know, the businesses are thinking twice about where they're putting their investments uh, because they've discovered things can change quickly and they don't want to be on the wrong side of that. So, yes, that probably does, again, have uh, some cost. You're not going to get this for free, uh, but hopefully it is more stable and, and more secure. So that is, you know, that is an underlying cost pressure in our economy. Um, you know, it's, it's security, the world is changing, it's, it's a real thing, we all have to adapt to that. Um, you know, some people have said, well, maybe you should just, you know, allow inflation to run a little higher because there's more cost pressures. Mm -hmm. I think the other side of that is, okay, how is more inflation and more inflation uncertainty going to make that real adjustment any easier? I think it's just gonna make it harder. Um, so that does mean it may be a little tougher to get get back to two percent inflation, but it, in my mind, does not question the value of the destination. We're just uh, time for one more question. Um, Canadian household debt service ratio reached fifteen point two percent in the third quarter. So this is after tax. Um, after-tax money for that Canadians put towards mandatory debt, as I understand it. Um, and that's after maybe 40% of mortgages that were originated in the ultra-low interest period have been renewed. There's another 60% in the next two years. Um, I guess that number is headed in one direction. Um, do you have a sense for, um, are there parts of the economy or parts of the population that you think about or that you worry about more than others? Yes. Um, so, 
we have highlighted for some time that, that Canada uh, is, Canadian households have been taking on more debt. Uh, and we have highlighted that that's a vulnerability to the Canadian economy for some time. Uh, and when you combine higher debt with higher interest rates, you get higher debt service costs. And, and so we're seeing that now. Uh, if you look across households, um, what you're seeing is that, as you said, about 40% of mortgages have reset already. Uh, that means there's 60 to go. Um, now, I, just because somebody hasn't reset their mortgage doesn't mean uh, it's not already affecting them because a lot of households are looking forward. They say, okay, well, I can see what's going to happen. When that resets, I'm going to have to spend a lot more on my mortgage, so um, I'm going to sock away some of my income now by a GIC, so I'm ready for that. So whether your mortgage is reset or not, it, it may already be dampening your spending, and we are seeing that. And to be frank, that's kind of how monetary policy works. Right. Uh, monetary policy you know, squeezes people so they spend less, and that takes the steam out of inflation. So now what you, what, what you don't, there, there's two things we worry about, though. One is we don't want to overdo it. So we are, we are very conscious that you know, there's risks on both sides. There's risks of not doing enough, and, and, and Canadians would have to keep living with too high inflation, uh, and ultimately we'd probably have to raise rates even more to get it down. But there's also risk of doing too much, and we definitely don't want to do more than we need to do. And we're, you know, we're, we're in a difficult phase. We're trying to balance those risks. When you look at households, what you see is that there's no question higher mortgage rates are squeezing many Canadians, but most of those Canadians are paying their mortgages. Mortgage delinquencies um, and, and late payments, uh, they were very low during COVID. They have come back up, but they're still at or below pre-COVID levels, which is actually pretty low. Um, the segment actually that is having a tougher time are, are um, not mortgage holders, renters. Mm. Uh, if you look at car loans, you can see delinquencies for car loans, other types of consumer loans, credit cards, those have moved up more. And I think this, uh, a lot of this is related to income. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's the people with the lower income, the more vulnerable Canadians that, are, that have been hit hardest by inflation uh, are hit harder when the economy slows down. Uh, they have less savings. Uh, it's harder for them to meet. You got to pay your rent. Um, you know, they, they're already uh, shopping very carefully for uh, food. Um, you know, they don't have as many buffers. They don't have as many options. So unfortunately, it is hurting them more. Um, one thing I will say is that, so we, we are, you know, unfortunately, we got one interest rate for the whole country, right. for everybody. We have one instrument. There are, you know, governments have other instruments and they are using them uh, to try to uh, protect the most vulnerable. Um, certainly the best thing we can do for the more vulnerable Canadians is get inflation down because inflation disproportionately hurts low-income people. I think that's a great place to leave it. Governor Macklem, on behalf of the club, thank you very much for choosing our podium to end the year. And, um, you know, I, I, we admire your leadership and contributions. So thank you very much and all the best of the season to you and your family. Now, well, thank, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure and best of the holidays. Now, before we conclude this event, um, I just want to invite you to our first one of the new year, Wednesday, January 10th. We have our 47th annual Outlook. 
which is widely recognized as Canada's uh, best political and economic forecasting lunch. It's also the most fun. Visit us on our website for more information and to register if you haven't already. Thanks to VVC, our AV partner, for your ongoing support. And thanks again to our sponsors, EY, TD, TMX, and Bruce Power. On behalf of the club, have a wonderful holiday, and we'll see you in the new year. Thank you.